Welcome back to the History Raid podcast. For this week, I decided to change up the style of my content a little bit. Instead of the more sort of scripted content I've been making so far, I decided to switch things up a bit and have a more sort of free-form discussion uh, about a topic, uh, this week being uh, the Korean War. And to help out with this, I have conscripted, pressured, whatever the word you want to use, uh, a colleague of mine on my, the ongoing tr- uh, history teacher training course, PGC, that I'm on, to come on and give me a hand with it and sort of have someone I can actually talk to in, well, in person, quote unquote, about the topic. Yeah, this is a very different new style of content for me, so hopefully you'll like, you guys will like it. So without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome to the History Raid Podcast. I'm your host, Kieran Kovach. Today's topic, the Korean War, with special guest. Dan, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Uh, good, good. Would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? So I am Dan. I am a PGC student at the University of Worcester with with Kieran, and uh, very lucky to have been asked to help with him, help him do this today. Ah, yeah, cool, cool. Yeah, um, obviously the viewers of this, uh, listeners rather of this podcast will obviously know my name, but what you might not know is that I, like Dan, am a PGC uh, secondary history student at uh, the University of Worcester. And this is, well, something I've been doing since I've been on placement for, you know, the uh, the last, well, it's, it's over a month now, isn't it? It is over a month, it's yeah, quite thank, a while. Yeah, thanks to, you know, the current situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, but today Dan's been kind enough to jump in to help to, to sort of uh, vary up my content a little bit and have sort of a more sort of less scripted, more sort of free-flowing discussion on today's topic, which is... The uh, Korean War of 1950 to 1953. So, I mean, how, how much did you know about the Korean War before uh, before sort of we agreed to do this? Out of curiosity, then. I was very lucky to have had a few lectures about it at Aberystwyth, which I know you also went to mm-hmm. Aberystwyth when I did the did the Cold War module in the politics department there. Um, I uh, uh, done a lot of study on on the Cold War. Uh, outside of that in different different subjects as well, but there was a couple of lectures that were specifically about the Korean War uh, that I was able to, to go to at the time. Uh-huh. Yeah, like you say, it was kind of the same for me, where I was sort of more more vaguely aware of the Korean War thanks to uh, studying uh, international politics at Aberystwyth, and it occasionally comes up in just wider discussions of history. But yeah, again, it, it is considered to be sort of one of those forgotten wars, essentially. And... Uh, yeah, it's kind of a shame, given uh, the both the significance at the time and the potential significance the war could have had. So, um, yeah, if you I listen guess to... it was so, so soon after the end of World War Two, in really that it, it doesn't really stick out in people's minds as much yeah. from that. Era. Um, yeah, it, it, Vietnam, Tron sort of overshadows it because it has such a bigger mm. uh, impact on on American culture. Mm. Um, that that was the main one, and that, that's the one that. America can really be, in my opinion, say to, to have lost. So that one sticks out, and Americans mm. like to talk about that a bit more. I think. Yeah. Uh, from that, yeah. There's also the fact that, like, it 
well, as you say, it took place so soon after the Second World War. And it's sort of like how the Spanish flu is like a relatively forgotten piece of history, mm-hmm. at least up until recently anyway, yeah. uh, because it took place, well, technically during, but, you know, in people's imaginations right after the First World War, where everyone was sort of so kind of traumatized by what happened in the First World War that they were, that, you know, the Spanish flu didn't have the same sort of impact despite it killing a lot more people. Yeah, people's minds were more focused on the, the, the war rather than the, the what was going on in the hospitals at home because that's where mm-hmm. everyone's minds were focused. I think that, that caused yeah. it to put back people's minds a bit. Right. So um, I, I know you've listened to a couple of episodes of uh, my podcast before, Dan, and uh, one thing you might have noticed, and other viewers and uh, listeners rather might have noticed, I don't know what you're saying, viewers, um, I suppose people on YouTube, uh, The I like to take sort of a long view uh, on historical events rather than just jumping into it so just for a quick bit of context uh korea is a historically a kingdom but nowadays two republics that uh are on the korean peninsula in the northeastern uh part of asia and it's sandwiched between uh china uh japan and actually has a very small border with the russian federation and just it's a very mountainous, very hilly place, uh, which was historically very isolated from the rest of the world. Uh, in fact, uh, a, a name for North Korea nowadays, the Hermit Kingdom, is actually an old name for the Kingdom of Korea. And again, historically, it only really had uh, relations with uh, China, which it sort of historically had sort of a big brother, little brother relationship with, where the Chinese more or less left the Koreans alone. And in exchange, the Koreans would, you know, come and kowtow before the emperor, give tribute, you know, all, all the usual stuff. Uh, the, occasionally, they'd have the Mongols, the Jurchens, sort of roll across the northern border to, you know, loot and burn. Uh, so that they had to deal with that for quite a long time. And finally, they had the Japanese, who were a regular threat to them from the east, uh, in, invading uh, Korea at one point during the 17th century, which... Actually, I actually read about this invasion a while back, and I was rather surprised to learn that this Japanese invasion wasn't actually specifically an invasion of Korea. It was an invasion of China via Korea, with the Japanese shogun at the time actually saying to the Koreans, hey, we don't actually want to fight you. In fact, if you want to, you can join us, and we'll go beat up the Chinese together. <laughs> but, um, I yeah. It, that, honest, actually, but I thought, <laughs> to me. So. Yeah. So yeah, and, and in that war, the, the Koreans did manage to see off the Japanese with the help of the Chinese, who, again, were sort of the big brother protector. Until the mid-19th century, when Japan, oh, sorry, China started to collapse from various internal and external pressures and opium wars typing rebellion. And with Japan having modernized and become this, this big sort of Asian power in the meantime, uh, they very quickly fell under uh, Japanese influence. Where there was there was a brief period where they could have maybe have become sort of a Russian puppet, but that was fairly definitively decided uh, by the Russian Russo Japanese War, and Korea would officially become part of the Japanese Empire in 1910, who would institute a pretty brutal colonial regime. It's, you can sort of make some comparisons between. Uh, Korea and Ireland in a way where it wasn't just sort of like the British style, say Indian imperialism, where it's like, okay, we're going to exploit you, but you can kind of keep becoming Indian. You can keep sort of being Indians. Like we're not going to literally try and kind of 
yeah, demographically replace you or anything like that. But in Korea, uh, tons of Japanese settlers moved to Korea, and the um, the Japanese colonial administration tried to basically forcibly culturally assimilate the Koreans. And this was enforced by a pretty brutal police state. And you know, it got even worse through the Second World War when hundreds of thousands of Korean men got conscripted into military service and hundreds of thousands of Korean women got uh, got conscripted as comfort women or sex slaves, essentially, for the Japanese army. So, yeah, as, as you can imagine, this caused quite a bit of resentment in Korea and there was a lot of opposition. So, again, any of this familiar to you at all? Uh, yes, I know quite a bit of that from, from my studies at university, but also a little side bit of what you've just been saying there, that the reason uh, why the Korean football teams nowadays have a lot of uh, Japanese ancestry in them is because of exactly what you just just said then. Mm. Um, they kind of, cause, cause they've, their population's mixed over such a long, long time. Um, various rules allow them to play for, for each other, so that's a little tidbit for you there. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. I didn't actually know that. Uh, like I don't give up the sport much, unfortunately. Um... So yeah, basically, and in the Korean resistance, the two big figures that emerged by the end of the Second World War, when Japanese rule in Korea was ended, was uh, Sigmund Rhee and Kim Il-sung. Uh, now, Sigmund Rhee uh, was, he was in his 60s by the end of the Second World War, and had sort of been kind of a professional revolutionary uh, since the end of the 19th century. And he'd been forced to flee Korea uh, for America in 1912, where he studied law at Yale, I think it was. It might have been Princeton. And actually converted to Protestantism. And basically throughout the next uh, three decades or so, uh, he was basically just lobbying the US government, trying to get them to sort of support the cause of a free Korea, basically. And he, he basically was a major figure in this sort of Korean provisional government that was around for about 20 years before the end of the Second World War. And he sort of had, a, he had an image uh, which then suckered in quite a few Americans where, again, he was viewed as sort of very Americanized. He was like, oh, he was this Korean, he was this Oriental guy. But, you know, he spoke fluent English, he'd studied in America, you know, he was a Protestant Christian. And again, he just had this image of sort of being a kindly old man. Uh, but if you sort of keep track of what he was doing politically as part of sort of the Korean liberation movement, uh, he actually had a pretty pronounced sort of uh, authoritarian streak and was very ruthless and duplicitous. And even by the standards of the times, he was rapidly anti-communist. And when the Korean War, uh, sorry, when the Second World War ended in 1945, he basically bribed a U.S. OSS agent to smuggle him into uh, Korea uh, so that, you know, the Americans didn't have the opportunity to sort of block a potentially rather uh, volatile individual from getting into Korea and possibly causing problems for them. But again, once he mm. got into Korea, he started sort of establishing himself as a, a potential sort of pro-Western leader of Korea. And his counterpart, who showed up in the North in, in 1945, was a guy called Kim Il-sung, uh, who was in his, I believe, mid-30s in uh, 1945. Yes. Uh, yeah, so again... He, really... he was quite young, because he ruled for quite a while, didn't he? Um, but, mm. uh, and, and he claimed to be the rightful leader of Korea, even though some might say he was actually born over the border in Russia. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, he he was quite young when he came to to power. Uh, he was actually born in Korea, but uh, he only spent about six years in Korea before his family fled uh, into northern China. And in fact, I was kind of amazed to learn this in my reading. But actually, uh, until Kim Il-sung returned to, to Korea in 1945, he didn't actually speak Korean. Uh, I may have been confusing it with his son then, because one of his hmm. relatives was, was possibly born over the border. Um, yeah. That yeah. might be a, I was thinking of there. But John, I know there's some tension John, about, about where he claims to have been born and what is actually the truth. Um, uh, yeah, can, uh, you're thinking of that Kim Jong-il there, his, his mm. son and successor, who was born in Russia. Like that, that That's pretty well known. But, of course, there's like official North Korean propaganda saying he was born in Korea and there was like these divine events that happened when it happened and yada, yada, yada. But, yeah, basically... Uh, so, yeah, he spent... You know, his, his early years in China, uh, Kim Il-sung did, and he obviously learned to speak Chinese rather than Korean, uh, although he still end, and he ended up becoming a fairly ardent communist, and he also been, ended up becoming a Korean nationalist. You know, uh, sort of, he had sort of the romantic notion of sort of going back and freeing his homeland from the Japanese. And uh, he would serve as basically a guerrilla commander uh, in the Chinese Communist uh, uh, Party's army under Mao. And he would prove to be a pretty effective guerrilla commander. Like, he wasn't, like, a, a genius or anything like that, but he was pretty good at his job. But, like, so much to, to the extent that he actually caught the eye of the Soviets. And uh, he actually, in, leaving like, the late 30s, he actually ended up joining the Red Army, where he rose to the rank of major and learned Russian in the meantime. Uh, and after the um, after the Second World War, when the Soviets were looking for basically someone to potentially be their guy in Korea, uh, they interviewed a whole bunch of people. So again, <laughs> Kim Il Sung literally got the job through like a literal job interview, which I found rather funny. And uh, yeah, basically he was because of his sort of good relations with the Russians and you know his perceived abilities as an administrator and a leader he was basically uh, put in charge in Korea. Firstly, unofficially, but later, officially. And, yeah, basically, when Sigmund Rhee and Kim Il-sung arrived in Korea, the uh, Korea was divided uh, between military occupations by the United States and the Soviet Union. And, actually, um, the US occupation of, the so- of Korea was actually done on very short notice. Um the, they had been planning the occupation of Japan for ages, but it was only really, literally in August 1945, that the Americans realised, oh, wait a minute, you know, we might have a chance to sort of get a slice of Korea here, maybe sort of deny it to the communists. And I'm not even kidding, um, in August, uh, the division of Korea was carried out by two uh, US Army colonels in the State Department in the course of half an hour with only a National Geographic map. <laughs> they literally just sat down in the State Department. It's like, all right, we need to divide Korea between us and the Soviets. Let's literally just draw a line down the middle of it. <laughs> Which, uh, they a lot from previous, uh, after World War One, where they'd um, just by drawing lines uh, across, across a map. So you need to sort of learn from that. But obviously people never learn. Yeah, I mean, people like to sort of talk about how, you know, Africa was sort of just kind of arbitrarily divided between the European colonists without any real, 
you know, sort of thought to it. But at least they had, like, an actual, like, conference where they discussed things. It wasn't, like, literally just, like, a half an hour with, like, two guys who'd never even been to Korea. Like, <laughs> a National Geographic map. It's almost like they were, like, left it too late and thought, oh, no, hang on, we've got to do this, and then got a line and just went, that'll do. Um, without any really thought to it at all. Yeah, I mean, you know, that is pretty much exactly what happened. Uh Although they did put a little bit of thought into it, because um, the south of Korea, uh, sort of the, the line that they drew, like the southern part, uh, actually contained two-thirds of Korea's population, and also mm. contained the historical Korean capital of Seoul. So it wasn't really an even split between them and the Soviets, but Stalin was still sort of in his cooperation phase with, with the West. Mm. So he was kind of just, he was sort of like, yeah, whatever. And again, this is kind of the beginning of a kind of a trend you'll see throughout the entire sort of story of the Korean War, where like no none of the really big powers that were involved in Korea really cared about Korea. Like it didn't really have all that much to weigh in the much in the way of sort of resources or manpower, at least in the grand scheme of things, offered them. You know, Korea was more just sort of a symbolic thing or sort of the idea of denying something to the enemy, despite it not really having much value, at least in their eyes. And, um, yeah, basically the Soviets and the Americans came in and occupied it. And uh, there was actually quite a bit of resistance in the South because initially, because while they they did initially sort of liberate, uh, greet the, the, the Americans as liberators, um, the Americans' focus very quickly turned, you know, back to Europe, where you know the real action was, as far as they were concerned, and and also to, to Japan as well, trying to get Japan built back up again. So they really dragged their feet on sort of trying to find any kind of solution to possibly reunifying uh, Korea. So he actually had like a state of martial law being imposed in Korea, and so the American administration was a lot more harsh than, say, the one in Germany or uh, Japan. And uh, it wasn't all it wasn't all roses of the north either, because the uh, communists there started carrying out land reform and stuff like that. We saw like most of like the upper and middle class of sort of northern Korea sort of flee to the south. Although it is worth pointing out that Kim had a much lighter hand than say Stalin or Mao when it came to that sort of thing. So there wasn't the same kind of like mass violence that you saw during previous examples. And oh, oh you doing okay? Yeah, I'm here. How are you? Uh, I, just see, I just heard things sort of rattling around in the background. <laughs> no, not at all. Okay. So, yeah, basically in 1947, uh, the UN finally got involved and said, all right, let's have free elections. Um, but the uh, but the Soviets refused to be involved. And can you guess why the Soviets re- refused to sort of allow elections in the North? Well, because they knew that they wouldn't get people that they wanted in in power. Uh, You'd think that, but actually there was quite a bit of um, communist sympathies in the South, actually. Um, Sort of uh, the American military, or less the American military, but more specifically sort of the the paramilitary groups that Sigmund Rhee sort of managed to establish when he came back, spent a lot of time pretty brutally putting down sort of communist guerrillas and uprisings in the South. Uh, the reason the, the the Soviets refused to uh, to be involved is because they were convinced that the UN wouldn't basically allow the elections to be fair. Which, again, some people pointed out, there's they they sort of had a point where if you look at the UN, like 
1948, it really was kind of a US Western dominated institution. Like most of the world was still sort of colonized, basically. You know, they would they didn't have sort of many sort of many African and Asian countries which could potentially be sort of inclined to side with the Soviet Union over sort of like anti-Western colonialism or imperialism. They just literally didn't exist. It was it was uh-huh. kind of America's kind of diplomatic playground in a, in many ways. So again, they might have had a point in in sort of the elections not being fair. So yeah, basically there was no elections in the North. They basically just declared Kim Il Sung the new leader of the Democratic People's Korea, Democratic DPRK. How's it go? Democratic Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, exactly. And Any democratic in the name probably isn't democratic, though, is it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they did have elections in the South uh, in uh, 1948, uh, where Sigmund Rhee uh, ended up winning 96% of the vote. Uh, wow. can, can you care to guess how that happened? I, I can guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, yeah, Sigmund Rhee, again, showing his, showing his true colours. Uh, basically, any political opponents, you know, communists or otherwise... Uh, you know, any of them who were, you know, brave enough to be openly uh, opposed to him uh, boycotted the election because, you know, Sigmund, because they knew that there wouldn't be fair elections with, you know, Sigmund Reed's thugs, you know, roaming the street, beating up anyone who, you know, they didn't like the look of, essentially. And, yeah, basically, um, in 1948, you basically had these two careers which were claiming the, the whole peninsula. And, well, you know, that was never going to end particularly well. So, um, like, what you sort of see in the aftermath is sort of the, uh, is basically the two Koreas sort of really going at it. And also the US policy of containment. Like, you're familiar with that, right? I'm I'm familiar with that. They wanted to keep everything, uh, keep uh, communism where it was rather than expanding. Mm. Uh, so their idea was keep it in North Korea, keep it in uh, China, uh, and stop it from getting any any worse from their point mm. of view. Yeah, yeah, Just, um, yeah. That was the idea, but um, the the U.S. sort of administration, sort of their, their sort of view of Korea was was so almost dismissive, really, that it actually got to the point where in, in January 1950, the U.S. Secretary of State, a guy by the name of Dean Atchison. Uh, in a speech talking about the U.S. sort of Asian defense perimeter, which mm. again was sort of kind of their sort of main policy of containment in Asia, uh, they actually left South Korea out in that speech. Oh, where, wow. as, as far as I'm aware, it wasn't clear whether that was like just a mistake on Dean Atchison's part, where like he literally forgot that South Korea existed. <laughs> forgot a whole country, but okay. <laughs> yeah, or whether like the U.S. legitimately didn't think South Korea would be like worth defending at the time. But yeah, you had the situation where, again, the Americans really weren't supporting the South Koreans all that much. Um, so on the on the dawn of the um, of the war, the North Korean military was way more powerful than the South Korean military. Uh, the South Koreans had been sort of looking to build up their military, but they were reliant on the US for that because they didn't have their own sort of weapons manufacturing capabilities. And the U.S. specifically basically greatly reduced the amount of weaponry they actually gave the South Koreans because basically what sort of the U.S. diplomats in Seoul were telling uh, President Truman was that 
the sick man Reed guy is kind of a lunatic, and like the first opportunity <laughs> that like he gets to invade the North, he'll take it. Like it's only the fact that like his military is like so weak at the moment is literally the only thing that's stopping him from just rolling over the border. Okay. And there was quite a few border clashes running up to the um, to the uh, Korean War, and it's it's widely accepted that most of them were actually instigated by the South. Mm. And uh, while well, in the North, um, Kim was taking a far more cautious approach, um, basically essentially lobbying Stalin uh, for for two years, basically saying, "Hey, support me in invading the South." And until Stalin saw that speech by Dean Atkinson, he was like, no, 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 I'm not going to risk War of America over this. But again, when he saw that speech, he thought maybe, actually, if we invade South Korea, America literally won't even get involved. It just won't care enough to support mm-hmm. South Korea. And Kiev also has had a much stronger position because in 1949, uh, obviously Mao took over China. Mm-hmm. And China uh, and a lot of Koreans actually fought in the Chinese PLA, the People's Liberation Army. Mm-hmm. And after the war was over, Mao allowed all these guys to return to North Korea and allowed them to keep all their weapons, which combined with sort of the Soviets sending further weapons and advisors meant that the North Koreans actually had a pretty pretty solid military with like lots of veterans from the war in China. And lots of really heavy equipment, including tanks and sort of heavy howitzers and the like. So, again, they were pretty scary at the beginning of 1940. And, again, like I said, Stalin eventually sort of gave Kim the go-ahead to invade uh, Korea on the explicit uh, instruction that basically he had, to, he had to get Mao to agree to this as well, because the Soviets were fairly open about the fact they didn't really care about Korea. So, you mm. know, they weren't going to intervene militarily if things went wrong. But Stalin thought, eh, actually, maybe maybe Mao will, like, if things go wrong. You know, this is called foreshadowing here. Uh, so so the only thing that basically the, uh, the Soviets provided, at least in the early years, was basic money and, and weapons, essentially, to the Koreans. And, yeah, the... And also, it's worth mentioning regarding the Americans that uh, their military was only about one tenth of the size it w- had been during the Second World War. It had been downsized quite a bit since 1945, mm. and most of America's best troops were in Europe because they thought that you know if a war is going to break out anywhere, it's going to be uh, in Europe. So again, they mostly had sort of fairly green, sort of lightly equipped sort of occupation troops in Japan, and that was about it really. And uh, yeah, so in on June twenty fourth, the, uh, the the KPA, uh, Korean People's Army, rolled over the border. And uh, can you guess how well that went for the South Koreans? Not very great. <laughs> um, yeah, they went over, um, and then they took over a lot of land in, in the South pretty quickly, didn't they? Because they took the South by by surprise. And obviously, what you said about America not having uh, a lot of stuff in South Korea, they weren't ready mm. um, for what North Korea were going to do. So that put them on the back foot a little bit there. Uh, yeah, specifically in the first five days of the fighting. Uh, so by the end of by the end of June, uh, the ROK Army, the Republic of South Korea Army, had mm-hmm. shrunk from ninety five thousand men to twenty two thousand. Oh, yeah. gosh. Yeah, that that was a, that was a, as a result of the combined factors of 
just the, the North Koreans blowing them to pieces, um, mm. uh, mass desertions, because, you know, as, as, you know, refugees started fleeing southwards, a lot of uh, ROK soldiers were like, you know, screw this, basically, you know, <laughs> we're just going to throw off our mm. uniforms and, you know, blend in with these guys and try and get the hell away, get the hell away from here. And mm. also a lot of them uh, just defected to the North Koreans. You know, a lot of uh, the a lot of ROK soldiers were conscripts who didn't feel any particular way, you know, about capitalism or communism. So when the North Koreans gave them the opportunity to side with the be, you know, to be quote unquote on the winning side, a lot of them took them up on it. Yeah, a lot of them were forcibly, like I think, I mean, conscription is is forced really, but like really forcibly uh, conscripted uh, in, into the army, and they would have had some some concerns about that. But also, I think as, as well, they they weren't necessarily getting the supplies they needed to. to to basically survive, yeah. um, and they 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 had a lot of propaganda, didn't they, from the north saying, "Oh, we've got all this, we've got food, we'll give you supplies, blah blah blah," mm. um, and that in, enticed a lot of them to uh, to move uh, over to that side. Yeah, but yeah, um, despite um, and there's actually this invasion actually caught the US completely off guard. They had sort of received some intelligence suggesting that that well, basically showing that there'd been some rather menacing troop movements uh, near. Along the sort of along the north south border, but U.S. strategists kind of just dismissed this as basically defensive moves by Kim uh, mm. in, in response to basically Sigmund Rhee's you know continual provocations, basically mm. <laughs> in sort of in triggering most of these cross border incidents. And um, yeah, and unsurprisingly, they really weren't prepared for this at all. Uh, although Truman did very quite quickly move to intervene. So, uh, for a start, uh, he basically had the UN on June 27th pass a resolution condemning the invasion and basically recommending that member nations send assistance to South Korea in the form of a police force. Basically, it was called a policing action rather than sort of a military intervention, which had two upsides for America. Uh, Firstly, it could sort of portray the whole thing as sort of being very sort of diplomatically and legally above board. It's like, you know, Oh, you know, we're not intervene, intervening in a what was basically a civil war. You know, we're mm. we're going in there as police. You know, the, the North Koreans have committed a crime, so we're going to put them right, basically. We're going to go and save lives and make them look good in the international in the international yeah. life, than getting involved and trying to put them on one. Mm. Uh, you know, putting it for their own uh, domestic issues at the forefront. Yeah, um, they were they were doing it for the greater good. Is is what they like to yeah to to try and portray. Yeah. And again, to be fair to the Americans in the sort of the ultimate sort of contingencies, uh, in, in the forces that ultimately showed up in Korea, like the vast majority of them were Americans. But uh, you had some sizable contingents from a couple other countries. Like um, I think about, I think the second, well, if, if you count the, the the actual South Koreans themselves, the the third largest contingent of what would become the UN forces was British troops. There was about fifteen thousand British troops who served in the Korean mm-hmm. War. Over the course of the war, and again, you had quite a, quite a varied uh, number of, of nationalities in the UN forces. Although a lot of them were only symbolic, basically. Like I think the Italians sent like one hundred guys, and uh, I think Luxembourg apparently only sent about thirty guys. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so that's quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, they're proportionally compared to like yes, compared to like Italy. Yeah, they did send a disproportionate amount of guys, but. Yeah, I have no real clue what they were getting up to. Probably half their male population, I think, is probably excessive. But like... mm. 
Yeah, and and he and he did actually have, like I said, you have the British who you know they provide a fairly large contingent, but he also did see some sizable contingents from like Turkey and Thailand and the Philippines and France who were actually involved in some major battles later on in the war. So you know, it mm. wasn't a completely symbolic thing, uh, and also the whole intervention of being under UN banner, also firstly meant that uh, the it would be less likely to provoke the Soviets because it was kind of an international thing. They couldn't sort of, like, oh, it's American imperialism. Eh, not really. It's sort of a more international thing. Mm. And also, uh, thirdly, in the context of uh, American politics, it meant that Truman didn't have to go to Congress to ask them to vote for war. Uh, which which they might not have done, given that, you know, how interested America was in sort of at least, at least sort of the American uh, Congress was in focusing on internal issues after the Second World War, mm. which was actually, I think the Korean War was actually the first war that America got involved in without the explicit consent of Congress. And you, you could argue kind of set a bit of a trend going forward for the next, uh, what, 70 years? <laughs> they set a bit of a precedent, didn't it, um, in terms of uh, what they would and wouldn't be able to, to do? Mm. Uh, especially if like they've already got permission to do that, they'll say, "Well, hang on, we can do this." Yeah. Okay. More recent. That's that's what happened as well. Yeah, yeah, and um, the Soviets did actually have the opportunity to to veto this because they were a member of the UN Security Council, but at the time of the vote, they were actually boycotting the UN uh, because of the UN's refusal to hand over uh, the Republic of China's seat, you know, uh, Taiwan. Is seen mm. over to the to the new uh, People's Republic of China. Uh, so yeah, that was kind of a bit of a diplomatic mistake on their part. So yeah, basically in sort of uh, early July, you had sort of the first American troops uh, basically arriving in Korea, and they were under the command of um, General MacArthur. Like, have you heard of him at all? Yes, I've heard of him. He was uh, in uh, in charge of the American occupation of Japan after World War Two, uh, and then he was put in charge of the uh, uh, of the troops uh, in South Korea uh, in in the Korean War. Yeah, yeah, he was he was basically in command of uh, U.S. forces in Asia, uh, both during and uh, after the Second World War. And again, MacArthur is kind of a fascinating character because he was a legitimately very talented uh, soldier. You know, fighting both on the front lines in World War One and distinguishing himself there, and also proving himself to be a very capable general in during World War Two. Uh, but he was also very well known for being a colossal narcissist. <laughs> yeah, he was. He had a very, very, very high opinion of himself, and it really, really showed. Like. Um, like, for example, when he was leading the defense of the Philippines during the Second World War, you know, the one where he famously lost and, you know, he was sort of being mm. evacuated and he said, you know, oh, I will return. And, you know, when he returned <laughs> two years later, you know, he, he had sort of the very sort of well choreographed sort of footage of him sort of coming ashore and him declaring, I have returned, you know. Um, so, and, but yeah, during that, the defense of the Philippines, uh, all the sort of, reports he was sending out not only to like high command but like also directly to the military press uh to, to the to the u.s press rather uh he was basically like saying like oh macarthur's men have carried out this action or macarthur's men have you know fallen back to this position you know rather than you know 
Philippine forces or whatever. So, yeah, like a very talented guy. His name on the good stuff, didn't he? And the, mm. all the about, you know, everything to make sure it was about him rather than it being about a, a, a certain country. Exactly. I mean, as, as he said, he was a bit of a narcissist, wasn't he? So that, that mm. sort of just leads from that. Also, he was very confident going into Korea as well because his time as uh, military governor of, of Japan uh, had, in his words, and again, I want to stress these are his words, given him an ins- given him insight into the Oriental mindset. Oh, right. <laughs> so he basically fought, uh, since he'd fought against the Japanese and had sort of been running Japan for about three years, uh, or five years at this point, he basically mm-hmm. thought, ah, oh, you know, Asian people are, you know, all the same at the end of the day, right? <laughs> you know, so I, I, I could just, you know, I, 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 could, I could tell what they're going to do even before they do, you know? <laughs> wow, nice person then. <laughs> yeah. And he came, but yeah, the first American troops who showed up in Korea were in a pretty bad situation where, uh, yeah, basically the ROK military was disintegrating, the KPA was rolling southwards at speed of knots. In fact, there was actually some speculation in, like, the U.S., like, Pentagon as to whether, like, these guys were on drugs, basically, because <laughs> they were moving so fast, which, I mean, they might have been. I, I honestly don't know. But, um, but yeah, and basically, Sigmund Rhee's only real response to his military disintegrating was to basically carry out, was to order his, sort of his paramilitary gangs to carry out massacres of suspected communists in the South. Mm. And, uh... Yeah, the actual first sort of uh, encounters between North Korean and U.S. troops didn't actually go particularly well, with the okay. uh, with the Americans sort of lacking this the sort of the levels of firepower they would uh, have later on in the war, and being sort of grossly overconfident, where they thought they'd kind of just roll over these these little Korean guys, but in fact they were sort of these mostly very green, very inexperienced troops up against you know mostly you know, hardened veterans of the war in China. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, they took pretty heavy casualties and, you know, were basically very quickly retreating southwards with what was left of the ROK uh, forces. And, yeah, this manifested itself in fairly ugly ways. And uh, so firstly, you basically had something that was later called the bug out, where basically a lot of these mostly, you know, very young uh, inexperienced American soldiers basically start having mental breakdowns due to, you know, the incredibly rude awakening they'd be given, basically. You know, see, you know seeing, you know, what they thought would be an easy win turn into a pretty arduous retreat with you know, leaving many of their dead friends behind, basically. And also, this was only revealed in the 90s, uh, basically after South Korea liberalised, but there was actually a number of massacres that were carried out by American troops against uh, South Korean civilians as they retreated southwards, because basically rumors started appearing that um, North Korean troops were basically disguising themselves as refugees to get behind uh, U.S. and ROK lines to cause havoc in the rear. So basically an order was sent out to a lot of these American units to basically, if you see refugees coming towards you, just shoot them, basically. Yeah, yeah, there was, there was, a, there was, a, there was at least one absolutely 100% confirmed case of like a couple hundred refugees basically being mown down by a big American cavalryman, I think it was. Mm. Yeah, pr- pretty nasty stuff. And they were blowing up bridges as well. And, you know, in, in some cases there was like ROK forces on the other side of the bridges. 
and uh, in some cases there was refugees on the bridges as they were being blown up. So, yeah, it was a really, really quite nasty sort of affair in uh, in, in July. And in all desperation on the Americans' part, like what what's driven them to 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 take these these actions? Are they that worried about the outcome that, that they think this is the only way forward to try and save some face? Well, definitely for the guys on the ground, less so. Again, it was still fairly early days for sort of. Uh, for Truman and MacArthur, but yeah, the, U- the actual U.S. forces that were facing the North Koreans, they were kind of in a state of panic at this point. And in August, you begin to see the Battle of... Uh, it's either Busan or Pusan. Like, I th- like, I've seen it spelt like both ways, but basically it was almost sort of this last stand, essentially, around the sort of southeastern port city of... Let's go with Busan where basically American and ROK forces were desperately holding out against the North Korean uh, onslaught. Uh, but again, this is the point in the war where MacArthur, again, basically reminded everyone why he had his, like, his own, but his own self-publicism wasn't the only reason he had his reputation, when he, instead of just sort of pouring more troops into the meat grinder around Pusan, he instead carried out a large naval landing at Incheon, which mm. I, be- I believe Incheon is part of... Uh, it, it was like a small city back then, but I think it's been sort of subsumed into Seoul nowadays, since, you know, Seoul's such a massive city mm. uh, in, in the present day. But yeah, it was basically like just on sort of the western coast, just by uh, what was Seoul at that point. Yeah, they were just trying to open up a second front, though, weren't they? Because they had all the, the troops... Uh, surrounded down in the in the southeasternmost part of, of what is now South Korea, but um, and they knew that there was uh, all the troops were a bit screwed really. Mm. Um, but the you know in opening a second front, they were making it easier for themselves, and meant that the Koreans had to split their forces up, which meant it'd be easier mm. uh, for both both sides to, to fight on uh, two fronts. Well, well the key uh, the key thing about Incheon was you got to keep in mind while while this is all going on, you've got basically a complete U.S. naval blockade around Korea. Mm-hmm. So um, the Koreans, uh, the Koreans still had sort of most of their supplies and like weapons and reinforcements and stuff like that. They still had most of this north of the thirty eighth parallel, and mm-hmm. you know, they had to sort of use like horses and trucks basically to get these supplies a fair distance, like down to the south to to the fighting mm-hmm. that was going on around uh, Busan. And the risk was with the landings at Incheon was that the American forces could basically recapture Seoul. And then literally pushed right across the peninsula, mm. and basically, if they were, if they managed to sort of basically cut this clear line across the peninsula and then dig in, you'd basically have a situation where the entire North Korean army would be trapped in South Korea, completely cut off from supply, where they'd be either wiped out or forced to surrender. And again, credit to the North Koreans, where it's, where it's due, they pretty much immediately recognised this and. Mm immediately started retreating troops uh, northwards. And again, this, again, this is a brilliant move by MacArthur, because again, the only other real option was to just, again, throw more men into the meat grinder and sort of slowly push the North Koreans back. But instead, you know, by doing this, you know, they were able to liberate most of South Korea without you know, basically losing any real significant number of men. Mm-hmm. And um, by this point, uh, the Americans were really sort of bringing their full firepower to bear. So, sort of while the North Koreans were, were streaming back north, uh, the American Air Force was blowing the hell out of them, basically. 
and to, to the point that um, of the original sort of North Korean force of sort of 150,000, 200,000 or so, only hmm. about twenty-five to thirty thousand actually made it back to the north. Yeah, it but, was. Yeah, <laughs> disastrous yeah. for the north. Then. Yeah, it was an absolute disaster, and um, yeah, basically at the end of September, uh, Stalin basically called a meeting of the Politburo in Moscow, where it seemed like initially he was kind of just willing to write off the whole thing. Basically, where he essentially hmm. just started handing out blame, basically saying that. Uh, what happened in Korea was the result of incompetence on the part of Kim and also the Soviet generals that had been sent to advise him. So, yeah, I'd have to look into what happened to those generals because I'd be curious to see how many of them uh, got killed after this. Um, Mm. But, yeah, essentially... So, again, basically the situation by October of 1950 was that... Basically, uh, the North Koreans had fallen all the way back to the 38th parallel. And the Truman, the US president, was initially fairly hesitant to sort of let MacArthur invade the North because he was afraid of possibly the um, the Chinese and the Soviets getting involved. And again, also, you've got to keep in mind as well that this is all taking place in a period of a lot of, of tension between the, the US and and so their allies in the communist world. So, again, there was a lot of people in the State Department in the US who were basically wondering whether uh, this whole invasion of North Korea might have just been some kind of ploy to draw American attention away from Europe ahead of some kind of full-scale Soviet assault in Europe. So, again, they were dealing with a lot of uncertainty, and they, and they didn't want to sort of provoke the Soviets. Well, at the same time, the, the Soviets are kind of having the same thoughts, where they were like, oh, this is going bad for us, but we don't really want to intervene because this might provoke the United States. Mm. And of course, at this point, both sides had nuclear weapons as well. So, you know, that definitely raised the stakes quite a bit. But it was ultimately decided that uh, basically UN forces would invade the North. Because, well, for a start, uh, South Korean forces on the 1st of October, while the Americans were still figuring out what they were going to do, just rolled straight across the border. Because, mm. you know, Sigmund Re obviously saw the, the North Koreans on the back foot and he was like, OK, well, you know, I've always wanted to reunite Korea and you know, this is the best opportunity. So, you know, I'm not stopping, basically. If, if, if you Americans want to come with me, you know, you're free to come, but I'm not stopping. Mm. And basically on the 7th of October, after um, Truman had basically talked to, uh, to MacArthur and said, hey, what, what are the chances of China getting involved here? And MacArthur, again, with his his brilliant insight into the Oriental mindset, reassured him that, you know, oh, don't worry about it. Like, China won't intervene. And even if they do intervene, we'll just blow to pieces with the Air Force. You know, don't worry about it. So, again, they rolled across the border on 7th of October. And, again, it was pretty it was pretty straightforward. They were just kind of mopping up the KPA at this point uh, and sort of driving north towards the Chinese border. And, in fact... Um, there'd already been some sort of indications of Chinese support, like, uh, at this point in the war. So I think they'd, like, captured some Chinese troops who were, like, amongst the, the Koreans. Like, only a handful. And they knew at this point the Chinese were, like, supplying them with, like, equipment and weapons and stuff like that. So MacArthur was, even at this fairly early point, was kind of thinking, 
Hey, you know when, when we reach the Yalu River on the Chinese border? Um, yeah, maybe we should stop. Yeah, let's 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 make a whole proper go of this. Let's have a big showdown with the communists right right here and now, basically. Which again wasn't what Truman was thinking, but that was definitely what MacArthur was thinking. Well MacArthur was thinking, oh we could start the rollback of communism completely. Yeah, if exactly. we carry like this. You know, he 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 wasn't thinking as you as you said, he wasn't thinking, Oh, we'll just we'll just sort out North Korea and then we'll stop. He was thinking, hang on, we could roll back into China and deal with them mm. um and potentially uh, even further yeah. further than that. So sort of in this sort of first week of American deliberations, the beginning of October, the Chinese were having their own deliberations where they, mm-hmm. they Mao basically chaired a series of meetings of the Chinese Politburo where, mm-hmm. against some resistance, actually, like there, a lot of the Chinese members of the Politburo basically believe that they should focus on rebuilding China rather than sort of getting involved in, in, in a never potentially devastating war. Uh, but Mao eventually managed to win them over. And it was agreed that uh, China would intervene. And then uh, Mao basically went to the Soviets and were like, OK, we're going to intervene, but basically we need support to do this. So the Soviets were like, OK, we'll support you in the form of, of basically sending you equipment. Oh, 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 and we'll also give you air support. And the Chinese were like, oh, great, that, that sounds really, really good. Uh, but then the Soviets said, well, actually, you know that equipment we're going to give you? Uh, it's on a credit basis. So we're not just going to give you the stuff for free. Like you're going to have to pay us back for this eventually. <laughs> you mm. know, the, the the devastated war torn country that is China. You will have to pay this back at some point. And also that air support. Um, yeah, it's only going to be above uh, bases in China in case any American planes come over the border. And uh, also, we can't really tell you when we're going to be ready to do this. Like, give us a couple <laughs> of months, maybe. <laughs> So a bit, a bit like pointless then at this point. Yeah, the um, again, the Chinese appreciated the support, but it was way less than what they had hoped for. And again, this is kind of a feed that runs through the the war from the Chinese perspective. Is a lot of irritation on the part of Mao towards Stalin for basically in his mind, Stalin not really caring enough about the war and not not supporting him properly. But uh, so yeah, on the 25th of October, uh, the after sneaking about 200,000 troops into the north, uh, the Chinese began their first big offensive against the UN forces, and this actually came as a huge shock to to the UN forces because I mean again at this point they were aware that you know there were Chinese troops skulking about and um, and and. Obviously, again, the, the possibility of intervention had been raised, but again, like I said, MacArthur kind of dismissed it. And uh, also, a big part of why the initial invasion was so devastating was because the Chinese were extremely good at camouflage. Mm. Like, uh, they were typically only, when they were sneaking into the north, and they'd actually do this for, like, a lot of the rest of the war, but typically they'd only move their troops at night. And during the day, uh, they would basically basically cover themselves in leaves, essentially, and hide. Uh, so you basically had a situation during sort of uh, sort of mid-early October, uh, sort of mid to late October, rather, where you'd have American planes flying over the north and they'd be sort of seeing weird things on the ground and, think, and reporting back saying, like, oh, yeah, you know, we, we might have spotted a force of, you know, 10,000 men in this area. And, you know, then, you know, when the big offensive started on October 25th, that same area 
would see like 50,000 Chinese attack. You know? mm. <laughs> so yeah, the Chinese attack was very devastating and resulted in some of the, the nastiest fighting of the war. Like there's a, there was a particularly famous battle called the Battle of Chosin Reservoir uh, in uh, sort of late November to early December, where you basically had American troops completely surrounded uh, by Chinese forces. And again, this this was uh, again this is like this is winter, remember? And the way the air currents work in sort of Southeast Asia is that basically North Korea gets to enjoy Arctic winds from Siberia. Mm-hmm. So the, the temperature was incredibly cold. Like, uh, like the stories of like American soldiers in November uh, mm-hmm. enjoying their Thanksgiving meals, where they mm-hmm. had to where they had to eat the, the meals in a very specific order. Like, uh, I think they had to eat. They had to eat. They had to basically drink up all the gravy really quickly, and then tuck into the mashed potatoes really quickly, because if they say ate the turkey first, by the time they got to the uh, gravy and mashed potatoes, they would have frozen solid. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So, again, it was really brutal conditions they were fighting under. And, um, yeah, there, there was a great quote. And the Battle of Chosin Reservoir actually ended up being... It, it, it sort of became kind of the American version of Dunkirk, where mm. they did eventually manage to break out of the encirclement and were evacuated by ship uh, from, the, from the coast. Uh, so, again, it was technically a, a, a defeat. But the fact that it looked like for a while they might have, you know, been on the brink of being wiped out, sort of, kind of allowed them to sort of spin it as a victory, which um, which was also helped by the fact you had one of the greatest quotes in U.S. American history to come out of that um, uh, battle, where the guy in I think it was like the first Marine Division I think who were fighting at Chosin, and the guy in charge of them, a guy called uh, Major General Smith. Basically, when he when he was asked by his his command staff, when he sort of ordered the breakout of the encirclement, whether they were retreating, like he apparently responded with "Retreat? Hell, we're not retreating. We're just advancing in a different direction." <laughs> yeah. So that was, again, that, that's kind of what, again. It's one of the great sort of American military quotes up there with like nuts and <laughs> other such you know uh, remarkable sayings. But, yeah, it was still a pretty undisguised disaster where, again, the U.S. were able to kind of withdraw with a certain modicum of dignity, but the South Koreans got hit really, really hard again. And while the South Koreans weren't quite as just in a pitiful state as they were at the beginning of the Korean War, they they still weren't up there with the Americans at this point. So the Chinese just ran over them just completely, basically. Mm. Um, but, and while this is all going on, basically, uh, Kim Il-sung, again, the guy who, remember, uh, within a couple of decades after this, would essentially establish himself as a living god in North Korea, was being told to sit in the corner by the Chinese, because uh, he was officially relieved of military command in December, on December 17th, 1940, which meant that all remaining North Korean troops were now officially under the command of the commanding Chinese general, a guy by the name of uh, Peng Dohuai. And, uh, yeah, by the, basically by the end of December, the UN morale was at complete rock bottom because they'd be basically been pushed all the way back to the 30, to the 23rd, uh, the, the uh, 38th parallel, sorry. And uh, on the 23rd of December, um, 
the sort of the commander in the field. Because again, MacArthur was the guy in, in t- overall command, but he was basically overseeing things from Tokyo. The guy who was actually sort of doing the stuff on the ground was a guy by the name of General uh, Walton Walker, who uh, who was a protege of Patton and very much took after Patton, sort of the kind of hard charging, no nonsense kind of guy. Where, ironically, um, he died in a jeep accident on the 23rd of December, which is the same way his uh, his mentor Patton died in uh, 1945. And this saw a guy by the name of General Ridgeway sort of take over sort of field command. And uh, Ridgeway is actually a kind of interesting character because he's this he's fairly sort of soft-spoken, charismatic guy who, who was... Basically, he's a very good general because he'd served in the Second World War, but in the aftermath of the Second World War, he'd spent about five years working at the Pentagon. So he kind of had a very good understanding of, like, the political concerns of fighting a war, while sort of MacArthur was sort of like the old-school soldier who basically sort of thought, well, it's the state's job to support the military, you know, not the other way around, basically. And, uh, yeah, MacArthur, speaking of which, during this period... uh, was was not particularly happy because he'd been pretty publicly humiliated by the Chinese, and his solution, his well, his believed solution was to uh, take the gloves off, use nukes. Mm. Uh, specifically, what he wanted to do was to drop a series of nukes across the sort of North Korean Chinese border, basically, essentially creating a a dead zone, essentially, of this irradiated la- uh, landscape that would basically prevent any more Chinese troops from crossing into Korea and and essentially cut off the Chinese troops in Korea from further support. Uh, So, but yeah, Truman, basically he knew how the Soviets might interpret the Americans starting to blow things up in in Asia with nukes. So he denied this uh, request by MacArthur. And also famously Truman and MacArthur kind of hated each other because uh, again Truman basically viewed uh, MacArthur as kind of a pruning sort of uh, peacock who you know who didn't respect him and uh, MacArthur basically viewed Truman as kind of a useless basically empty suit really uh, who who was basically purposefully holding him back basically from achieving victory in Korea and uh, but yeah, just to basically not uh, make it seem like everything was going China's way. Uh, by the time they got to the thirty eighth parallel, they were having pretty severe issues with keeping their um, their forces supplied uh, because of the big long supply lines at this point between the Chinese border and the front lines, which were constantly coming under attack by U.S. air power and. Um, Again, there's all the interesting things people like to talk about of the Korean War, sort of the big evolutions that happened in uh, in sort of medicine during that period, sort of battlefield medicine. Like, um, mm. yeah, did you do any sort of like medicine um, topics during your placements? Not really, but I know that like superglue was invented in, in a battlefield, and it might be in the Korean mm. War, uh, I believe, because uh, they used it to, to quickly seal up. Um, injuries, uh, so they had time, you know, basically buy time so they could get them to a proper hospital mm. uh, and then and, and fix them, them properly. I knew that that's, that's where Superglue uh, originated, I think. Okay. Um, uh, I have not taught medicine myself, though, yet. 
yeah, yeah, I haven't either. But, uh, but yeah, basically, um, it's, it's sort of comparing sort of the Chinese and the um, and the Americans. Like the reason that so one of the, well, one of the reasons given for you know uh, the number of Chinese deaths, you know, so kind of like and then like you had like five Chinese soldiers dying for like each each American soldier, and I think that might actually be even a fairly conservative estimate right there. And part of the reason for that was that basically, if a Chinese soldier got wounded, uh, it was he only had relatively limited medical care on the front lines, and it was again very difficult to evacuate them to like proper hospitals further behind the lines because, uh, yeah, basically there was a pretty good chance that any trucks carrying uh, these guys uh, would get blown up basically by the U.S. Air Force en route, while the Americans had a very sophisticated. sort of medical evacuation system involving um, these sort of mobile medical units called MASH. I mean, you, you might have heard of the old TV show by the same yeah. name. Yeah. So I've heard of that. I think, is it NCIS that comes from that? Or am I thinking of something else? Um, uh, no, it might be something else. But yeah, I know, I know, I've heard of the TV show MASH, yeah. Yeah. So basically, with the Americans, you actually had this pretty sophisticated sort of kind of three-layer sort of system of... Uh, of sort of casualty treatment where, you know, uh, if a soldier was wounded on the front lines, you know, if he'd have a field medic there sort of to sort of patch him up sort of on the spot as best as they could. And then usually within an hour, uh, they would be able to evacuate that guy behind the front lines where he'd be picked up by helicopters because uh, the Korean War was the first war to see the widespread use of helicopters. They, uh, there'd been a couple of very early versions used during the Second World War, but like like I said, this is the place where they really started using them in large numbers. And uh, then they the helicopters would bring them to uh, to these these mash units who were like only like ten miles behind the the front lines, where mm-hmm. again they'd patch them up even more, you know, with like proper like doctors and surgical equipment and whatnot. And then from there, they would be sent to a quote-unquote proper field hospital, you know, way behind the lines, where at this point, you know, the cha- if they hadn't, you know, died from severe injuries already, uh, the chances of them surviving was very, very high. Mm. So, yeah, and it's, it's just kind of a fascinating sort of little side of how, uh, how um, health, uh, how healthcare sort of evolved and sort of medicine evolved during the, uh, the Korean War. And, but yeah, again, it didn't, it still didn't help the fact that there was a massive stalemate at this point and the relationship between Truman and MacArthur was getting worse and worse. Um, basically, MacArthur was basically again saying, again, take the gloves off, you know, we're fighting with one hand behind our back here. Uh, my new idea is uh, we don't just sort of use nukes in North Korea, like we start nuking Chinese cities, like we start using our navy to start attacking Chinese ports, basically. Like the Which China- is the rollback uh, concept that uh, I was talking about earlier. That's just, that's what they were starting to do. If we start bombing Beijing, um, we might start pushing back communism altogether. Uh, it, the, essentially, yeah. I, I mean, the way he sort of presented it at the time was, um, well, as in China's in the war at this point. You mm. know, uh, I mean, officially, China's official position was that, like, Oh, you know, the, the 200,000 strong force we have in, in Korea? Oh, they're just volunteers. It, it's, mm. kind of, it's kind of the same line that the Russians used in in Ukraine more recently. 
Yeah, yeah. It's like, no, 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 they're not there under orders. They're just, you know, really enthusiastic about helping out the North Koreans. And, you know, we didn't really think it was fair to stop them. And, oh, we let them keep all their equipment as well. So, you know. <laughs> right. and, um, but yeah, so, yeah, the, the stalemate and basically uh, MacArthur was saying uh, basically to Truman, like, all right, you know, they're in the war. So let's start treating them like they're in the war by, you know, bombing their cities with nukes. You know, and mm. hopefully that'll either A, make them pull out of the war, and or B, which is kind of more implied than openly stated at this point, that, you know, once we've pushed them back to the to the Chinese border, we could then roll over and sort of finish off the Chinese, basically. And, uh, yeah, Truman was not in favour of this. Again, didn't want to provoke the Soviets. And there was also apparently sort of a moral sort of objection as well, where I think Truman said something along the lines of, I don't want to go down in history as, like, the greatest sort of mass murderer of Orientals since Genghis Khan or something like that. Yeah, you don't want that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... That'd be quite an achievement, really, wouldn't it? Because he killed quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. So, and also, it wasn't just the private disagreements either that were breaking down relations between Truman and MacArthur. MacArthur... Um, was actually uh, making statements to the US media, basically complaining about how he wasn't getting enough support from the Truman administration. And he actually, and this is the really salacious thing, like I hadn't actually heard about this, but apparently he'd actually been secretly meeting with diplom- diplomatic representatives from at the very least Spain and Portugal, basically telling them about how he expected the war to escalate to a war with China and basically kind of reassuring like I said, we, we we know at least the Spanish and the Portuguese was basically reassuring them, ah, oh, basically don't panic when this happens, we'll, we have, we'll have it under control. Which, again, is, is literally going behind the president's back and basically uh, essentially carrying out diplomacy with other countries, despite the fact that, you know, you're just a general, that's not your job. <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah, basically Truman ended up firing MacArthur, which... Uh, was a huge hit to his popularity back in the US because MacArthur did still have this pretty, you know, strong reputation as a war hero. And, uh, yeah, and he had him replaced with Ridgway, who I personally think was definitely the better man for the job for sort of, you can kind of argue maybe MacArthur was sort of like a better sort of World War Two general, sort of like a, mm. a guy who will, who will win at all costs, you know, sure victory, yada, yada, yada. Well, with the more sort of complex political landscape of the Cold War, someone like Ridgway, who's sort of more reserved and more politically aware, is you know just a plain better choice to be in charge in in Korea. And um, also, brief aside as well, uh, in sort of 1951, sort of the first year of this sort of this stalemate, uh, the Soviets did actually uh, increase their support for China where, uh, as well as, they'd been providing them weapons before this, but they started providing them trucks at this point to sort of try and help out with a really difficult supply situation. They had sort of, again, like ferrying stuff from China all the way down to the 38th parallel. And they also started flying uh, planes uh, above uh, the northern part of North Korea because Mm -hmm. the Americans had actually been bombing they were still bombing targets in North Korea, and there'd actually been a couple of cases where the North, where American pilots had quote unquote accidentally bombed targets across the border in China, and I think there was even a case of them actually bombing a Soviet base just across the border as well. 
Didn't they? Yeah, they accidentally started bombing uh, Manchuria, didn't they? Mm, yeah. Uh, at some point. Um, yeah, it was... Uh, I'm not quite sure exactly when when it was, but obviously it was a big big problem yeah. uh, for them. So, so Korea was one of the very few instances where you actually had Soviet and American forces uh, directly uh, fighting one another. Uh, which, I mean, from my, from, my, from my knowledge, the only other war I can think of where that happened was the Vietnam War, uh, where there was a couple of instances of Soviet troops fighting Americans there. Uh, but yeah, you basically had um, Soviet pilots uh, basically in, in, their, in MiG jets fighting uh, basically American jets over sort of North Korea. And I actually read that apparently um, to try and sort of keep their involvement as much of a secret as possible, uh, mm. they um, the Soviets' uh, MiGs were repainted in Chinese colours and the pilots were taught to communicate to each other in Chinese over, over the radio. Mm. And they actually even went as far as giving them like, uh, like Chinese like citizenship papers and stuff like that. In oh, case, wow. they, in case they were shot down and ended up in American hands, which I mean, I, I kind of just have this hilarious kind of image in my mind now of like uh, one of these guys falling into American hands and be like, "Oh yes, American comrades, look, my name is Boris. I am a citizen of People's <laughs> Republic of China." <laughs> and being like, "Yes, you, you believe, yes." <laughs> Uh, so I mean, yeah, the Americans were kind of vaguely involved, of, uh, aware of Soviet involvement, but you know they never, you know, pressed the issue. Let's say in, in the same way that they sort of considered pressing the issue with uh, with the Chinese. And uh, yeah, basically, um, for a while, uh, basically, it was in 1941, actually, that, uh, or specifically in July 1941, that talks began regarding a armistice to the war, which yeah. um, these went on for quite a long time, as you can probably guess by the fact that the war ended in 1953, because basically you had a situation in 1951 where the American negotiate, well, well, the UN technically negotiators were showing up to the negotiations in a place called Kaesong in modern day uh, North Korea, uh, basically thinking Hey, we have saved the South from uh, from the Northern invasion. We're clearly winning this. And then you'd have, well, basically the Chinese mostly negotiated with like a couple of token North Koreans along, who have basically yeah. showing up to negotiations and being like, "Hey, you know, we've just pushed the Americans out of North Korea. We're winning." So you know, neither side was really in a particular in a particular mood to give concessions. Yeah. And so the initial position of of the Chinese to basically return to uh, basically the, the the old pre-war 38th parallel, like wasn't really, the Americans couldn't really agree to it because uh, that border, if, if you look at it on a map, that border is kind of impossible to defend in any kind of future war. And um, I think technically at this point in the war, like overall America had actually gained territory like it, it, it just it just pure, it, pure like square kilometers like yeah it wasn't a lot of territory and I mean it was enough to mean that some families were split up hmm. um and, and where like refugees had been carted around up and down uh, the the Korean Peninsula uh, over over the last year you you, you found like families had been split up and yeah yeah so uh, yeah so basically just a few kilometers 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ultimately. Yeah, yeah, basically, like, I think it was something like, basically the North Koreans had sort of taken over what used to be sort of, like, Northwestern sort of South Korea, but then, like, UN forces were sitting on what used to be sort of Southeastern North Korea. Um, Well, and basically the Americans kind of wanted that essentially to be sort of the new borderline. But again, the Chinese weren't really willing to to, uh, abide that. And yeah, for this point, basically the war basically stalemated. Like you, you had a couple of, of Chinese offensives, which, you know, didn't really much, make much progress. You had some American, or well, again, UN uh, offensives that didn't really make much progress. And you basically saw a switch from essentially um, from the Americans focusing on trying to push the Chinese back towards them just trying to bomb the North into submission. Where um, I can't remember the exact like tonnage statistics, but uh, the estimates show that like the Americans dropped like more bombs on like North Korea than they did on like both Japan and Germany during the Second World War. Like they completely leveled North Korea. Like uh, like like even even like individual villages were being like targeted for demolition, and like by the end of the war, like you had like American. Uh, like Air Force uh, officers in Korea basically complaining that they were running out of targets because mm. they were basically just flying over North Korea and just seeing nothing but just complete and utter desolation <laughs> which is uh, which became a big part of sort of post-war North Korean anti-American propaganda where you know it was they... actually like a shock and awe kind of tactic wasn't it um, to just almost scare the North Koreans I guess into, into rising up uh, as well, um, obviously it didn't didn't quite work yeah. that way, but that's why they went away. So you know, kind of like a little bit like what Hitler did with Blitzkrieg. Mm. Um, you know, the same, same kind of uh, aim, but uh, not the not, not the same kind of outcome. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, basically it's uh, and, and also it would have also made it pretty difficult for the Chinese to again continue supplying, uh, sending supplies to the front lines as well. The fact that you know. Basically, pretty much anything the Americans spotted, you know, immediately got blown up, essentially, regardless of whether it was, like, a village or a convoy or whatever. And, uh, yeah, and this kind of, this this stage of the war is sort of defined, again, less by sort of the sweeping advances of sort of the early uh, war in sort of 1950, sort of the exciting part of the war, you could say. And said was kind of just these grueling stalemates along the 38th parallel where you had... Um, like individual hills where you know both sides would sort of lose thousands of men either taking or holding just these individual hills basically and you know whenever one side took a hill you know on the other side of that hill there was another hill with you know the uh with the un or the chinese waiting for them on that hill so yeah Mm. and also again obviously there was some pretty severe suffering on the parts of um the korean civilians where um in the north obviously they were being bombed flat and in the South, um, much of the South had been destroyed in 1950 by the advancing North Koreans. And uh, as the, the UN forces you know, liberated the South, uh, Sigman Rhee's sort of paramilitaries, uh, who had sort of been carrying out those massacres, uh, sort of as the North Koreans uh, were advancing South, then busied themselves out, were, busied themselves with carrying out similar massacres uh, as the UN forces were sort of retaking towns and cities going north, because 
you know, rather understandably, a lot of people in those cities when it came under North Korean occupation were basically forced to either, you know, join the North Korean army uh, if, if they were men. And if they weren't forced to, forced to join the army, a lot of the time, you know, they'd have to, you know, basically swear allegiance to um, to the Communist Party, basically. And, you know, they kept they kept records of that stuff. So, you know, you have, you have, you'd often have, you know, people just being rounded up and executed by the South Korean paramilitaries as the North Koreans uh, moved north. So it was really, really nasty affair on each side. And... It's, however, it would seem that in by by about uh, March 1953, the uh, sort of the grind of sort of both the bombing and the fighting at the 30th parallel was starting to take effect. I mean, like the low estimates of the amount of Chinese that were killed in the Korean War is like 200,000. Like there's like one Amer- there's like one American estimate from the time that claims like a million Chinese were killed. Which, which sounds a bit big for me. It sounds kind of like a big sort of round number they wanted to show off rather, mm. than, rather than an accurate assessment. But still, you know, they kind of just completely pulled that number out of nowhere. And, um, yeah, basically they started, the Chinese started taking the uh, negotiations more seriously. And this was helped in large part by the fact that in March 1953, uh, Stalin died. And up until this point, Stalin had kind of been happy with sort of Korea, potentially being like this, again, sort of this grinder that the Americans were sort of feeding their forces into, essentially. He kind of had this idea that like, oh, if, if, we, if maybe if I grind them down enough in Korea, maybe that could open up opportunities in Europe. Uh, but yeah, in, 19, uh, in March 1953, he died. And basically the new pretty chaotic Soviet administration, you know, be, this is before Khrushchev managed to sort of climb to the top of the pile, basically sent a a message to the Chinese saying, hey, we're no longer in a position to support you, so end the war now, basically. Mm. Um, And, yeah, the Chinese did start negotiating uh, more seriously. Although, can you actually guess, uh, obviously I talked a lot about the um, sort of the border, um, the exact position of the new border being a major sticking point early on, Uh, but can you guess what the main sticking point once the negotiations really got going in earnest was? It was about reunification, wasn't it? Uh, it was about repatriation. Oh, repatriation, right. Yeah, because uh, at this point in the war, the, um, the the communist forces in the north had about 20,000 UN prisoners, and the uh, the UN forces had about 200,000 uh, sort of Chinese and Korean prisoners. And obviously there was the assumption that, you know, as part of ending hostilities, you'd see, uh, obviously both sides sort of give the prisoners back. But the problem was a lot of the communist prisoners that were being held by the uh, UN didn't want to go back. Uh, a, a lot of chi- a lot of the Chinese soldiers were, at this point in the war, were conscripts, uh, many of whom felt more loyal to, you know, the old Republic of China than the new People's Republic of China. So they were like, yeah, we don't want to go back to that. And obviously you had a lot of North Korean prisoners who were like, actually, we think like sort of uh, capitalism and democracy sounds, you know, well, quote unquote democracy uh, <laughs> under re, um, sound, sounded better to sort of uh, North Korean communism. And you can imagine how this would look if um, the Ameri- if the if the if the if the communists gave their prisoners back, and the vast majority of the UN prisoners wanted to be repatriated, 
Like I think mm. in the, I think in the end something only something like two hundred uh, South Korean prisoners and like twenty Americans like agreed to stay in the North at mm. the end of the war. Um, while something like, uh, like something, something like at least twenty two thousand like uh, South Chinese and South uh, North Korean prisoners basically stated like, "Hey, we don't want to, we don't want to go back." Basically, and mm. um, yeah, basically in the end they. But basically, just, I'm getting a bit, myself, a bit ahead of myself here. But basically, um, they realized how bad this would look on the international stage if you had the situation where, like, all the UN forces come back, you know, all happy and, and smiling and cheering, but a sizable chunk of the communists don't want to come back. I mean, that, that's just great propaganda right there, right? It's like, oh, look at all these communist soldiers. Their countries are so rubbish, they, they, they don't even want to come back, you know? Mm. So the the communists are kind of insisting at the negotiations, like we don't care what they what what they think, you know, we want them back basically. And the UN are obviously kind of reluctant to give them up. And at the end, they actually have to bring in the Indians as a uh, neutral, uh, basically party, where they basically set up a whole commission where basically they essentially assessed uh, all the prisoners that the UN had and basically decided essentially who's going back and who's staying essentially. And yeah, that basically uh, led the way to uh, the signing of the armistice on the 27th of July, 1953, uh, which, uh, and and it was signed at 10 a.m. and came into effect exactly 12 hours later. And basically the border agreement was basically essentially, the border is going to be like right where the front line is. Only only both sides have to pull back three kilometers and that six-kilometer area becomes demilitarized. So that's uh, the famous modern-day demilitarized zone. So during the during actually the final twelve hours of the of the war, they actually saw some of the fiercest fighting of the entire war. It's basically both sides kind of flung themselves at each other to try and sort of like again just pinch those last little bits of territory and sort of win sort of those last sort of little desperate victories. So that you know. They could basically go home and say, hey, we won because, you know, we took that insignificant hill, you know, an hour before the armistice, you know, uh, you know, came into effect. So, again, technically, we got the last laugh, you know. Mm. So, uh, yeah. And that was the state of affairs where, obviously, again, it was an armistice, not an official uh, peace treaty. I, th- I think they tried. I think, I mean, to, this, to this day, they still don't have a peace treaty. Though. They've only just started really talking about it, haven't they, because of the, uh, the, the almost detente. Mm. If you like, um, uh, in in relations uh, recently, but I still don't think they've even uh, really got an, uh, got a, uh, a a formal end to the war. Mm. As well. yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, they did try and hash out a formal peace treaty uh, in 1954 in Geneva, I think it was, mm. but um, the, the that ultimately led to nothing because uh, both Kim and Sigmund Rhee. Uh, were very unhappy with the way the war had, had turned out. Uh, Kim mm. was obviously deeply disappointed that he basically failed to reunify Korea. And I think, that, I'd have to double check this, but I remember reading somewhere that, like, while, like, basically one re-heard about the, basically the, chi- the UN negotiators and the Chinese agreeing to an armistice, he actually threatened to, like, order, like, the South Korean forces to, like, attack other UN forces unless, like, they, they agreed to, like, uh, revoke the armistice, essentially. But uh, that ultimately led to nothing. You can see that that would have backfired quite badly as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But again, like, like, 
But yeah, like I said, from my from my reading of Re, he was kind of a bit of a lunatic, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> like he was he was he was that kind of sort of nationalist where, you know, he doesn't really think ahead, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> it's like well, reunify Korea at any cost, including and anyone who stands in the way is basically an enemy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Typical dictator, then. Yeah, so, yeah, so basically, uh, once everything was tallied up at the end of the Korean War, you had about 3 million dead Koreans. Uh, that's both sides, sort of cumulatively. Uh, mm. Like I said, you had, on, on the low end of the scale, 200,000 dead Chinese. On the upper end of the scale, 1 million. And you had uh, 26,000 uh, Americans who were, who were killed. And, uh, yeah, so this is the point in the uh, GCSE lesson where uh, you start talking about consequences, so feel free mm-hmm. to take notes here, Dan. <laughs> uh, so basically, had a, a couple of pretty big consequences. Uh, the first one was that basically America pretty much never shrunk its military budget ever again in the rest of its history up until this point, essentially, where, of course, it's still growing nowadays. Mm-hmm. Where, again, the Korean War was quite a nasty wake-up call where the Americans realised... Yeah, in this new sort of Cold War sort of state of affairs, you know, we can't just sort of rely on the atomic bomb to just, you know, keep world peace. We actually need, like, a conventional military to act as a deterrent and to act as, you know, and, and to get involved in, in any of these future kind of proxy wars that spring up around the world. And, so, do you want to say something, sorry? No, I, I was sorry, I wasn't there. Yeah, and, and, and a big part of that commitment was... Uh, sending tens of thousands of soldiers to basically police the demilitarized zone in Korea, which served the dual purpose of obviously being there in case um, the North Koreans ever decided to come back for round two, uh, but also in case Sigmund Rhee got any ideas about restarting the war. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but... They're basically keeping, keeping the peace for both of them, weren't they? Pretty I think much, if, yeah. if Sigmund Rhee had fought, he could have, uh, could have had a chance, he would have taken it, wouldn't he? Because he's yeah. still got that kind of belligerence about him. Mm. Yeah, the war also had some pretty big consequences for China as well, because uh, Mao was able to successfully spin the war as uh, as a success. And the fact that he'd been sort of the biggest proponent for intervention in Korea sort of led to him sort of centralizing power around himself going forward. Because uh, again, mm-hmm. like the early years of the people, People's Republic of China, like Mao was the chairman, he was number one, but... In many ways, mm. he still kind of had to share power with, with the with the Chinese Politburo. You know, he hadn't mm. reached sort of the the levels of of well, essentially practical godhood for each see us sort of near the end of his life at this point. And uh, it was also sort of the beginnings of the uh, Sino-Soviet split as well. Uh, like, uh, have you taught that at all? In you know, on I've not taught. I've not taught or been taught about the Sino-Soviet split. Too much. I think. I think it t- touched upon it. I think. Um, uh, I can't remember his name. Uh, but Professor Alexander, I think, uh, 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 touched on it a little bit. Okay. Um, but yeah, but yeah, it wasn't too much taught about it. Mm. But yeah, basically, it was, it was a big split that happened between um, China and the Soviets in the sixties, and uh, the seeds of it were kind of sown in the Korean War, where again, as I mentioned, the Soviets weren't particularly supportive of the Chinese. <laughs> You know, they, uh, they, they didn't give as much support as the Chinese liked. And again, they, they put certain caveats that were incredibly frustrating to Mao and, and the Chinese. So essentially, Mao was kind of able to essentially go around and say, you know, not only have I, you know, won the war in Korea, 
but I basically did it on my own. Like, the Soviets didn't really have anything to do with it, and that basically meant that, essentially, with the, with the death of Stalin in the same year that the Korean War ended, Mao basically started going around, essentially styling himself as the new leader of communism, mm-hmm. basically. You know, it's like, oh, you know, this this new guy Khrushchev, you know, oh, what, what's he done? You know, I've 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 won a war against Western imperialism. You know, like he's just some nobody. You know, <laughs> and, and of course, of course, the fact that again, just the Soviets just weren't <laughs> particularly helpful during the war, which did nothing to endear them in chi- in uh, the eyes of the Chinese. And um, yeah, as for the um, what happened to the Korean uh, states, um, basically uh, until nineteen sixty. Uh, South Korea basically essentially remained a dictatorship under Ri. And it was actually one of the poorest countries in the world at the time because, uh, well, obviously they'd been devastated by the war and they were reliant on foreign aid. But basically Ri kept control through essentially enriching various sort of members of the South Korean elite, essentially. Uh, mm-hmm. And basically he siphoned off a lot of that aid money in the for- basically as, as part of kind of state organized corruption, basically to to basically to basically keep this power base secure for himself. Uh, while you know most of the best most South Koreans basically languish in poverty. Mm-hmm. And um, but yeah, he was basically he was overthrown in a student uprising. Well, he was forced to resign. He wasn't overthrown uh, in a student uprising in 1960, which. I'm fairly sure he was like in his 80s at that point, so I imagine it probably didn't take him all that much convincing to to resign at that point. But like only a year later, uh, a military coup took place where a South Korean general by the name of Park Chung-hee took over. Mm. Uh, where again, obviously, it was still a fairly brutal military dictatorship, but unlike Ri, uh, Park wasn't just a entirely corrupt self-serving cretin like he he actually sort of cared about south korea so he actually started you know actually sort of building the economy up you know putting that foreign aid to good use like he built up this big export economy and again this obviously and this culminated in 1988 when south korea um hosted the seoul olympics which uh, most people kind of think was the the kind of the starting point to South Korea becoming a full-blown democracy, uh, in which they did in 1997 when they had their first free and fair elections, which saw the first properly elected president, um, Kim Dae-jung, uh, elected. And as for North Korea, well, I mean, <laughs> North Korea is kind of a point of fascination for everyone at this point, where in the immediate aftermath of the war, Kim actually did a better job of running North Korea than Reid did the South, so... There was actually a brief period of time for about a decade or so where North Korea was actually ec- ec- economically better off than the South. But again, so the, the big uh, re being kicked out and the uh, Park regime coming in and basically kind of the economic uh, revolution that happened in the aftermath of that saw, um, uh, saw basically set the South start to really shoot ahead of the North. And during this period, uh, Kim was actually pretty keen for round two. Oh, uh, what was that? <laughs> nothing, I'm still here. Okay. Just, um, but yeah, basically, uh, I think, was it in 1968, I think it was, there, there was a big sort of upsurge in, uh, in violence, in sort of cross-border violence between uh, North and South Korea with uh, 
basically uh, North Korean soldiers like shooting and shelling across the border. Um, a team of assassins were sent to kill uh, 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 General Park and like came within literally yards of him uh, before they were before they were captured. And uh, I think during this time, uh, uh, Kim was basically lobbying uh, both China and the Soviet Union to basically support him uh, in another invasion of the South while America was distracted in uh, Vietnam. But uh-huh. again, the, the 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 Soviets and the Chinese were going through their own internal issues at the time, so he did get any, didn't get any support for it. And finally, during in 1988, in what some people kind of regard as sort of North Korea's kind of last desperate attempt to sort of cut the South Koreans down to size before they completely eclipsed them economically, uh, they mm. actually blew up a commercial airliner uh, during the uh, during the opening stages of the Seoul Olympics. And basically, an attempt to, to essentially sabotage the Olympics, and uh, which they recognised could be kind of the final big springboard the South Koreans needed to completely escalate uh, to completely eclipse them. But mm-hmm. yeah, that obviously didn't work, and in fact, it got to the point where in 1990 the USSR officially recognised uh, South Korea. See, up until this point, they'd only recognised North Korea as a legitimate government, and China followed suit in 1992. So the North Koreans have sort of been uh, left out in the cold after that, and that also directly led to uh, them developing nuclear weapons. Well, of course, they felt like they were being left to left to it, so they needed to have better defence. Yeah. Uh, and before, so it kind of pushes them in the direction of making nuclear weapons. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that's more or less everything I have to say about the about the about the leaders of the Korean War, the Korean War, and the aftermath. Like, did you? I, mean, I did a fair bit of reading for this. So, like, do you have any like questions? Because I, I might be able to answer them. No, I'm all good. I think you've answered everything. All right. Okay. Well, that's <laughs> great stuff. Great stuff. Now, me and Dan are going to have a chat about a film we both watched uh, for this conversation, uh, which was uh, what year was it again, Dan? You, you've got the cheap you've got the cheat sheet in front of you, right? It was like 2004 it came out, okay. um, so it's quite old yeah. now. Uh, I'll just Google it very quickly and then... Yeah, so yeah, we're going to have a quick chat about uh, a film we both watched in preparation for this called uh, Taigok Ju, I believe it is. Uh, is, is the um, South Korean title, uh, which translates to The Brotherhood of War in, in English. And oh, I... yeah, it was a film for the early... Taigok Ju, I think it is, and or The Brotherhood of War. Yeah. Cool. In English. So, yeah. So, yeah, this is a film we both watched in preparation for this, which uh, is a South Korean film, uh, which basically essentially depicts the the war from the South Korean perspective from uh, through the eyes well, of two fictional characters, the brothers uh, Jin Seok and Jin Tae, who are conscripted into the South Korean army uh, during the outbreak of the war. And essentially revolves around uh, Jin Tae basically is escalating acts of, of heroism to try and uh, get his younger brother, Jin Seok, uh, sent home and, uh, and away from the war. But ultimately, Jin Tae ends up, the war ends up warping Jin Tae into something, you know, much darker, essentially. So, I mean, what, what was your sort of take on the film, Dan? Uh, so it was pretty fast-paced, and it showed a lot of the, the events 
that, that, that did happen in the war. So I think it was pretty pretty accurate mm-hmm. uh, from that point of view. You said there were some bits that were a bit embellished a little bit, um, but I think a lot of films will embellish, embellish stuff quite a bit uh, just for cinematic effect. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah but, um, uh, the, the, I thought it had you know it had a bit of a personality behind it as well you know it had the two the main character that you could really um you know, get emotionally attached to mm. uh in, in a sense and really feel the, the pain that they were going through mm. yeah so i i think regarding sort of the historical accuracy of it like i'd say there's a good word for it called authentic where mm. obviously it's a fictional story like i don't know if it's based on a real story or not but uh it's it's definitely not like a one for one sort of telling of an actual story that happened but again it's pretty authentic in the sense that you know it it fairly accurately depicts the brutality of the korean war from the korean perspective uh obviously you see atrocities being committed by both sides um which which were which were similar to uh to actual atrocities that were carried out during the war like near the end uh obviously this is this is spoilers uh uh with we're going, obviously going to spoilers for this, so anyone who hasn't seen the film, you know, you might want to uh, go and watch it before listening to this. But obviously, near the end of the film, uh, Jinte's uh, fiance gets uh, killed by uh, by South Korean paramilitaries because she was basically forced to sign up uh, for her local communist party when the uh, KPA over- overran uh, Seoul. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, again. Like I said, by and large, it's it's very authentic, and there's obviously there's some small sort of historical nitpicks, like um, like uh, I, I'd say the combat was probably kind of over embellished a bit, specifically in the sense of the the, the movie likes having battle scenes where everyone's basically in like hand to hand fighting with like bayonets and rifle butts and fists and stuff like that. Where again, that yeah. fighting that kind of fighting definitely happened. Uh, in fact, I believe in I think it was nineteen. 19- 52, uh, a US uh, Puerto Rican unit carried out the last formal bayonet charge in like US Army history. Mm. So again, that that, that, did, that kind of warfare did, that kind of fighting did definitely occur, but I'd say it probably occurred a bit too regularly than it would have in the actual war. Mm. Um, and also, um, the way the Chinese, I mean, the, you don't actually see a whole lot of the Chinese in, in, in the war. It, it tends to focus more on the North Koreans fighting the South Koreans, but when you do see the the Chinese for a couple of scenes, they're they're not represented particularly accurately. Like, like specifically the opening scene where sort of the Chinese come swarming across the border. It's like it's it, it's a fairly cool shot where it's like it's it's hills that are literally covered with Chinese soldiers and all like running, charging across with like these big streaming banners and everything like that. Which again, mm-hmm. looks, it's a cool shot, but again, like I mentioned, the um. The Chinese basically snuck into North Korea. Like if they if they'd actually done what they did in the uh, in the um, in the film, like half of them would have been blown to pieces by the U.S. Air Force before they'd gotten anywhere near the front lines. So, but again, overall, it's um, it's not uh, it's not particularly egregious. And yeah, I, I would definitely agree with you in that the the two main characters were were very well written, very well acted. You know, the, uh, you did get quite emotionally attached to them. Uh, a lot. I'd, I'd say the the side cast was. I, I don't know. Maybe the side cast maybe a little bit too big. Maybe not quite fleshed out enough. Because there's a couple of scenes where like people, where, like uh, fellow South Korean soldiers, get like killed or like really badly wounded. And I do remember mm-hmm. watching that film for the first time and sort of being like, in those scenes, me, me being like, oh no, it's that guy. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> and like I, I, I can't remember his name. Like I, I know the character trait is like, oh, the guy who really hates the communists just got his arm blown off. Or it's like, oh, the guy who has the hot wife and and the young son, he just got shot. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> you know. It's, so it's it's not like Saving Private Ryan where like they do actually quite. They do actually flesh out the side characters quite well. So in the scenes where they are like wounded and killed, like near the end, uh, like you, you you feel the emotional impact of it in a way that you don't necessarily feel um, with uh, the Brotherhood of War. And uh, also, um, we, we were kind of talking a little bit about this before the conversation, but uh, while a lot of the the action in, in the film is practical effects, and you know by and large those practical effects are really good. Uh, there is some CGI elements, and uh, uh, they do look slightly dodgy. Like, so, so what was what was the theory you expressed to me, Dan, regarding uh, the scenes in Pyongyang? Yeah, the planes flying overhead looked a lot like uh, scenes from uh, World War Two, with the planes flying overhead, and it kind of looked like they made they sort of made it look a little bit better. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, on that, um, but I mean, the budget for CGI wasn't obviously wasn't the top of the agenda. Yeah. Um, for, for this film, but then you've got to bear in mind it was 2004 and CGI has come on a lot yeah. uh, since since then. So yeah. it's uh, it's going to be a lot different now, isn't it? So, but, but I, I do remember um, it, it, the big final battle near the end of the film. There's the bit where um, the uh, the American plane gets shot down and sort of explodes amongst the North Korean lines. I I remember that specifically the shot where they cut back after the explosion. The um, mm-hmm. sort of the wreckage of the American plane, like in sort of the big dugout, that does look very, very sort of computery. <laughs> so I've always found that shot to be kind of weird. It's like, wait, but why did they cut back to this? They could have just had the thing sort of hit and explode, you know, and then kind of kind of cut away back to uh, to the Jin Shock character, sort of trying to find mm-hmm. his brother. Like, why did they cut back and sort of show off like the the fairly dodgy CGI? <laughs> But yeah, also um, this is this is kind of a uh, I, I watch a couple of Korean films. This is kind of something that um, a bunch of them do. But the film didn't make particularly good use of music, in my opinion. They kind of use the same sort of uplifting uh, track piece, like at every single like emotionally resonant sort of moment. Where again, I don't, yeah. I don't know whether it's that I I, I I can't replicate sort of the. Uh, the exact uh, uh, piece of the music, like maybe I'll ed- maybe I'll edit it in at some point <laughs> during uh, when I'm mm. getting all this edited. But um, but yeah, basically that was uh, that was very much overused. And again, I don't know if that's literally just like they only had so much money to pay the composer, or whether mm. they they just the the people making this film just didn't really know how to make music and didn't sort of realize that using the same piece of music over and over again would get a bit competitive and sort of cheapen sort of emotional impact you're supposed to um to feel about it and um yeah so also uh again just to kind of uh to start finishing off uh quick note on the violence like you had some comments to make about the violence before uh mm. before we started as well didn't you say that again sir. oh you had, you had some you had some notes to make about the uh violence uh in the film before we started as well yeah, it, it was Quite brutal and quite gory, and I don't think I was quite uh, prepared for for that. Um, I think because fifteen and I have my idea of what a fifteen it does here. Maybe they 
maybe have different ideas of what in. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's a lot of blood, a lot of gore, like what? Uh, no, you, you, you're cutting in and out. You're cutting in and out. Uh, there, so. Sorry, at one point you see the guy's brains blown out. Yeah. Uh, after something happens. Yeah, after, after the, the guy shoots himself, yeah. Um, and then uh, they're quite gory about what they show. Yeah. The whole pack. Yes. Um, so it's definitely, but it's definitely, you know, it shows the realities of, of the situation. I think in, in a sense as well, it does go into other uh, themes such as, uh, you know, effects on mental health because of war. Hmm. Um, like this guy quite clearly had some PTSD. Yeah. Um, from events that were happening, I think he just thought that he had no other option. Yeah. Um, but to, to do what he did. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, but yeah, it was it was a very like, gory film, but also quite realistic, I felt, as well, uh, whilst maybe embellishing a little bit. Uh, at the same time, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd say it's uh, it's probably fairly fair to compare it to uh, Saving Private Ryan in many ways. Where, well, for a start, mm. it's also a fairly gory film that also has basically the same rating. <laughs> Again, yeah. why Saving Private Ryan has like a fifteen, sixteen rating is really bizarre, but um, mm. that, that's still the fact of the matter. And uh, yeah, like I said, it's there's, there's a bunch of scenes in uh, in the Brotherhood of War with sort of comparable levels of. Of, of violence and gore, as the uh, as the Omaha Beach scene from the beginning of um, of uh, of Saving Private Ryan. So, yeah, I'd basically be of the opinion that like if if you got a strong enough stomach to to watch Saving Private Ryan, you could probably watch uh, The Brotherhood of War without without too many issues. But uh, although again, I would say that the uh, in, in many ways the the Korean War was a much nastier war than. The, the fighting on the Western Front in uh, in World War Two. So, for, for example, you didn't have the same kind of mass execution of like civilians and prisoners on the Western Front, but you know, were fairly regular occurrences in the Korean War, which you do see at a couple points during the uh, the Brotherhood of War film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I probably wouldn't say the film's as disturbing as um, uh, Come and See. Which is a uh, particularly famous representation of the Eastern Front during the Second World War, but again, they <laughs> come and see the very disturbing films. That's quite a high bar to set. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and um, one thing I also wanted to mention um, uh, regarding the making of uh, uh, the Brotherhood of War is that a big part of the reason why sort of the practical stuff was as good as it was was because uh, South Korea back then, and still does, uh, have military conscription. Yes. Like, all, all South Korean men, and I think maybe women nowadays, uh, have to serve in the uh, the military for a brief period of time. So basically they have, like, a big pool of reservists uh, in case, you know, obviously war ever breaks out again. And, uh, yeah, basically... get rid of that anytime soon, to be honest, because they'll still be worried about the North. Yeah. But even... Recently, there was still a bit of a skirmish, wasn't there? Like some bullets were fired, although that might have been an accident. They said, "Yeah." Um, but uh, the, you know, they're not suddenly going to not have their reservists ready just in case they want to have. Uh, you know, in the in the film, we see how they suddenly have to um, conscript everyone who's up to the age of thirty. Mm, yeah, uh, because they didn't have the uh, the army. Although I don't know that was whether that was an example of them embellishing it a little bit for a dramatic effect. Um, 
but um, you know they, they do want to keep the reservists ready just in case, don't they? Mm. So yeah. So, uh, so yeah, basically, kind of the upside for sort of filming something like this, something like this film in South Korea, is the fact that basically all the extras you'll be hiring all have military experience, so uh, you don't really have to sort of train them at all to sort of act in sort of a military style during the big battle scenes. Like they all, they all know how to shoot a gun, they all know how to reload a gun, they all know how to sort of move around in sort of in a military style. So yeah, again, it, it all sort of. Uh, helps uh working it all helps towards again sort of the the feeling of authenticity the film has as opposed to you know perfect sort of i don't know like uh, gettysburg or like waterloo film levels of you know just pretty much literally exactly what happens sort of levels of realism mm-hmm. but uh yeah so yeah at the end of the day uh very good film uh, in my opinion like i'd, I'd recommend it like uh, do you have any sort of final sort of rating or recommendation to give it yourself, Dan? Definitely watch it, but be prepared for how gory it is. Mm. Um, don't, don't go into it thinking it won't, it won't be that that bad. It is a very bloody, gory depiction of of war. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, I think, <laughs> as kids, you said to me, you know, you, you probably wouldn't want to have it. Uh, with your lunch. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did, I did uh, mention it to you, but it was basically like the same Private <laughs> Ryan of, of Korean war films, which, which I, I thought was kind of like a, enough of a warning. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> take it from me. It definitely, you shouldn't mm. eat your boss. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm also kind of amazed that like, uh, I mean, I, I got to show like uh, one of the year nine classes I was teaching, like uh, Saving Private Ryan and uh, the mm. opening scenes and uh yeah, and I was basically told, you know, by the teachers, like, oh, you know, but uh, you know, basically, you know, they they're, they're tough enough; they can they can handle it. And from what I was able to see from the class afterwards, you know, they they did they would, you know, <laughs> they, it seems like the uh, modern generation is a lot tougher to stuff like that than I'd probably say sort of our generation was going through school because, like, I can't remember now whether we were shown Saving Private Ryan at secondary school. For for, uh, for like for Second World War, I can't quite remember myself. Um, but I, I mean, I do remember seeing the pianist uh, at school when we were uh, studying about the Holocaust because that had just come out at the time when we were studying it, and that was I don't know if you've ever seen that. That's quite a brutal depiction of oh, yeah. uh, Warsaw under the in the Holocaust. So mm, yeah, I think the pianist. It's it's a uh, it's great. Uh film. In fact, I actually showed the uh, the Warsaw Uprising clip when I was teaching the Holocaust, so uh, so yeah, like I said, it's, it's a really good film, so <laughs> that's it. Uh, after you finish watching The Brotherhood of War, go, go watch The Pianist, sort of uh, get, get your dive back into World War Two, sort of uh, kind of Euro- European action there after your little adventure to Asia. Okay, um, so I mean, yeah, I mean, unless you have anything else you want to, to add, or... Um, or, or, or ask about. Um, thank you very much for being uh, here, Dan. It's been a, it's been a good uh, been a good chat, good laugh, and uh, I, I hope I wasn't too long winded in <laughs> talking <laughs> about a, a topic which I got fairly deep into and very interested in over the uh, course of the last uh, about last week and a half or so. No, all good. All right. Well, uh, best best of luck uh, going forward, and maybe at some point in the future, if we feel like doing so, I might I be back on again. See how you feel. Right. So how I feel. No worries. Thank you for having me. All right. No problem at all. See you, mate. Okay. Have a good one. Bye.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode. As I mentioned at the beginning, this is a different style of content from me. It's a lot longer and it's uh, less scripted and obviously is a discussion between uh, me and another person. So depending on how I feel about this style of content uh, in the future and and the response to this uh, particular episode, I may very well make uh, more of these uh, sort of discussion style podcast episodes. I mean, I, I do have a number of other <laughs> bored uh, fellow PGG students, so I imagine I could probably rope a couple of more of them into it. And I mean, who knows? Maybe I could actually get some uh, more prestigious guests on at some point in the future. But until then, I hope you'll join me in, in my future raids into history. <laughs>